Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Transport Podcast. Today's guest is Mr. Martin Gillingham. Martin Gillingham is a parent of two children who've gone through Trent College. He's also a, an Olympian from the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Uh, and now you may recognise his voice from the vast array of commentating that he does on various platforms across the um, the wider TV network. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening to him. He's got lots of stories and he's, uh, he's very uh, enthusiastic with... Um, the stories he's got to tell us and the learnings that he's had from that. And um, it's, uh, it's the longest pod I've recorded, uh, but please uh, stick with it because there's some great stuff in there. Hello. Mr. Martin. Hi. Hi, Martin. How are you? Good. Is that loud and clear for you? Yeah, perfect. How are you? Good. Good. Now, I've, um, I've gone through, I've done a bit of prep, so we... Um... Okay. Hopefully, I won't be umming and erring too much. <laughs> has your um, has your diary started to fill up again? No, no, not or? not yet. I think okay. um, I think rugby's so busy. You know, they're fighting so much among yeah. themselves at the moment about you know they've got about what ten weeks to play with and they want to uh, squeeze in about sixteen weekends. So. Um, it seems like they're still fighting over what they're going to do. And I mean, this whole Leicester thing is quite interesting. I haven't read anything yet about, uh, about Leicester Tigers, but um, a Leicester lockdown is not, not no, what Premiership yeah. rugby wanted to hear. I think I was, um, I was surprised to see that Manu Tuolagi has left at, at such short notice. Yeah. They should never have re-signed him in the first place though. I think, I mean, when they, when they did that new deal with him, when it was a couple of years ago, it baffled me because he's either, He's either playing for England or, or injured most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean clearly, I mean guys like Bianu, I think, had always had a better deal in Paris with Stade Francais. Um, I think. Any word on the street as to where Manu's going? Well, he nearly went to France, didn't he, a, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago? Um, but. I mean, I to be honest with you, I'm not speaking to too many people at the moment, so I'm I'm not really picking anything up, but they're all going these days to either Japan or, or France, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, look, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. So the purpose of your um, uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge is <laughs> I've, t- I've titled the pod From the Track to the Microphone. So okay. how um, you transition from being an elite uh, high-end Olympic athlete into obviously a sports career yeah. uh, and sort of the journey that's taken you on. So um, talk, talk me through the start then, Martin. Where did you start? What school did you go to? How was school, university, and then lead me on to the Olympics? Well, I, I went to school called Royal Grammar School High Wycombe, which does now have a fair sporting reputation. They've done pretty well at rugby. Although back in the day and I mean, I went there in 1976 and before I decided to go to the RGS, which was and still is a state grammar school. So I had to take what was then the top plus exam. I did have the opportunity to go to to Millfield School, which, again, in those days, perhaps still is one of the, the sort of elite sporting institutions. But I always felt pressure to succeed to a degree academically. So I went to RGS instead. Um, 
And when I look back, I didn't always have an easy relationship at school because I was, I think, pigeonholed very much as a sportsman um, in what was an academic hothouse. Um, But there's no doubt it was the platform for the sportsman, if you like, I became. I I, I mean, I could almost look back now at my youth almost looking upon myself as a different person because it's so long ago. But, I mean, I was that irritating kid who was good at all sports. I was the sports that I played. Schools counted cricket. Um, I was utterly convinced from the age of 12 that I play rugby for England. It was never in doubt. Um, But I could always run. Yeah. Um, but, But running was something I did in the summer. And, you know, for a school which now... um describes itself as a as a, a school with a great sporting reputation I think it's perhaps a little bit embarrassing for them that and I've just checked this up I mean I still hold 13 school records I mean one of them is, is I mean one of them is 43 years old and <laughs> and and you know but, but I look back but in terms of the senior records I mean I still hold the 800 the 400 meter hurdles the long jump the triple jump um and and, and to be fair to the school um, I mean, I, I was their first Olympian, uh, but they have gone on to produce some... Or, Superstars, or haven't Christian Wade oh, Dawson. Correct. Well, it's funny, Christian Wade still holds the 100 metres record. 2006, he ran 10.9. You're right, Matt Dawson. You know, the late Nick Duncan, yes. yeah. who, who um, I mean, you all know, and, and if people are listening, want to look him up, I mean, there is a statue to him at the, the Twickenham Stoop because... I mean, he died very early on in his life. He'd only just made his England debut, I think, yeah. uh, a few months before. Um, but but he was regarded as being a better prospect than Matt Dawson ever became, mm. which gives you an idea. Tom Reese, yeah. who also was an England captain, he went there. And a couple of names that may surprise, well, certainly one name who will surprise um, people who are listening, who... Um, for what it's worth, has probably made more money than every other sportsman the school ever produced. Luke Donald, oh, okay. the golfer. He came from, I mean, literally across the road from the school. And when I was at the school, the only other um, sportsman of sort of international repute was um, was Phil Newport, who played uh, Worcester and England cricket, who was uh, an outstanding cricketer and, you know, played in an Ashes series. But, but, but that was it. I mean, it was... Um, being the sort of school it was, um, it did attract good sports people, but its focus was essentially on academia. And um, to a degree, it shaped what I became because, and again, this is partly, partly I think, perhaps through my character, um, but I eventually, I think, chose athletics because I wanted to be the master of my own destiny. I mean, I, I never wore the white jersey of England, but I was on the fringes of the England 16 group, as they were called back in those days. I went to training. I can remember doing a, a week in England camp at 16 with um, uh, at Bisham Abbey when, I mean, you probably remember the name Mike Rafter, yes, yeah. who played play in the back row for England. I, I, I still laugh at him every now and again because he still turns up at at, um, at some professional matches these days, as I think a sighting officer. Right. <laughs> and of course, like, like we all become, Mike, you know, Mike's a sort of a little old man now. But I said, you, you know, you were once my great hero on a week because you were the sort of head coach and, you know, the uh, 
the player to aspire to. He was a sort of outstanding rugby player. But but yeah, I mean that's that's where I came from. So were you, were um, you on the wing, Martin? No, I was a fullback. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean I did play a bit on the wing on occasions, but not really at school. Um, I, I was a fullback, and, and you know, believe me, I mean I. Uh, I mean, I used to kick goals from all over the place. I mean, I was the only kid in my age group who um, was picked for the school first 15 when I was fifth form. So that's what year 11, as we call it now. Um, I had a coach who believed in me. And um, no, I used to, I mean, I used to tackle everything that moved. I kicked goals from from halfway. I remember the second game I played, I knocked over a drop goal from 40-odd metres. Um uh, and I, I was quick, but, you know, you mentioned that name, Christian Wade. I was not Electric. lightning rugby quick in the way a Wade was. But Roger Black um, you know, played, didn't he? He played a bit. He was probably a generation ahead of you in terms of athletics, but he was a 400-metre yeah. runner that, that played a decent level of rugby as well. So there's obviously the transition is there. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, if you're... Uh, if you're big and you're fast and you um, and you've got some ball sense, which to be honest, not, not that many athletes have, but one or two do have. And and Roger Black was one of those. I mean, the other benefit I had as a youngster, I stand only now at six feet and perhaps I'm starting to shrink, but I was five foot ten at the age of eleven or twelve. So, oh. I mean, most of the kids I played against were were frightened of me because I was quick and I was big. But as you'd appreciate, as other kids catch up in terms of their, um, you know, the maturation of, you know, they get taller, they get stronger. I, as a sportsman, had to develop accordingly. I could no longer just run through kids or run around them. I had to develop other skills. But, um, you know, looking back, rugby was where I had my ambition. Rugby was where I had my passion. And to be fair, I was good. I was good. Yeah. And I thought I would, I, I always thought I would make it as a rugby player and didn't ever think I quite had it as an athlete, mm. but, but there you go. There so you go. did you take the um, English schools journey? No, I did. Um, I, I competed in my first English schools athletics championship. 1978 it was at Chesterfield. Okay. Um, and I competed in the long jump. So I was a junior boy. And I broke the I broke the the school's record, but unfortunately, two other blokes did, and I finished third. Um, I didn't go in 1979 when actually it was at Harvey Haddon, would you believe, here in Nottingham? Okay. Didn't go to that. 1980, I went to some murky spot in the suburbs of Liverpool, oh, uh, and uh, it was no, it was um, Kirby. Kirby. Yeah, had a big cycle track around it. Yeah. I don't think it's there anymore. I understand. But by then I turned to 400 meter hurdles. Um, so that was when I was a sort of under 16 or something or intermediate, I think they called the age group. And I finished third again. I then went in 1981 and that was on a cinder track at Yeovil and I finished fifth. And then in my final year when we had the championship, so that's when I'm year 13. Um, I went to um, Birmingham and I finished third again. But the two guys who beat me, one ended up going to the Olympics in 1988 and the other one went with me to the Olympics in 1984. So it, it, it was it was high quality. I mean, I, and, and, and I, I, I benefited. And that's my old school record. 53.2 so seconds in 1982. 53. And was that your PB? 
yeah, that was my PB then, and that was run in that um, English schools at Birmingham in 1982. Okay. And then, so you, so you must have left school at, in 1982. Yep, left school in 82. Now, again, I mean, this was, um, I shall sort of bear my soul a bit here, because, I mean, if you ask my son Nick, who one or two people who are listening will, will know, um, it crops up in conversation time again. Time again. college legend. Um, well, <laughs> so so he so he tells me. Um, I, I went to Harvard University in the states, okay. and um, and and Harvard's good Ivy League school. You know, it's it's everything that Oxford and Cambridge is. I mean, I was not. Um, I would not have been an Oxford or Cambridge student, but I did have to take entrance exams. Harvard and I and particularly in one subject I did very well um, and I was awarded the scholarship because they in that respect when it came to sport and if we look at um, um, she was saying the sort of the mantra at Trent College it, it's more than just academic ability it's 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 talent across you know the full spectrum of uh, of thing whether it's music or whether it's arts or sport I mean, I, I had that little bit extra because I was a decent athlete and I had the opportunity to go and I got a scholarship. Um, but it proved to be a real low point in my life. Mm. And it's where I, in my view, still looking back, it's one of my great regrets. I failed and I walked away because I was having in my mind to devote too much time to the academic side of life. Right. Um, and not enough of sport now rather naively at the age of 18 or, or 19 or whatever I was um all I wanted to do at that time was to become an athlete and go to an Olympic Games now because in that period at 16 17 I'd gone through that shift of I think uh, I'd had a couple of bad breaks in rugby and I saw that my athletics was improving um, I walked away from Harvard and that's still, if you ask Nick, if you ask my wife, it's, it still crops up in conversation as a great turning point in my life that I, that I, I have many regrets about. The, the, um, the one regret. Just on that, Martin, it, it wouldn't have been a well-trodden path though, would it, to go out to Harvard at that point? It was pretty ambitious to investigate that in the first place. Yeah, I mean, there were, I suppose I've got to be careful how I say this, but at that period, there were a lot of British athletes who were going to American colleges. Right. But let's be honest, um, you were not getting much of an education at many of those colleges. Okay. Uh, they, they were there to train in the sunshine. Yeah. Um, Harvard's different. I mean, as I said, Harvard is in the Oxford-Cambridge yeah. bracket. It's the, it, it is an elite institution. Um, but, no, but no, you're right. I mean... Most of my mates were going to good universities in the UK, and I was taking this apparently bold step to go to the States, and it didn't work out, and it largely didn't work out because I think I probably made a mistake. But but what I did was I came back, um, and I went to um, uh, my, my sort of family home, as it were, going. I mean, I hardly ever lived there, but 
my my parents are both from I was I always say the wrong end of Leeds. They're from behind Leeds United football ground. Okay. And and so that's you know, and you know, my mother who sadly now late mother, um, if if you'd heard her talk, you wouldn't know her and I are related. Right. So so I went to and this is a place you'll know, uh, Carnegie yes. College. Yeah, yeah which back in those days was part of Leeds Poly. And um, it, it was not, dare I say, particularly demanding in terms of how much work I had to do. And on top of the Windy Hill there at Beckett Park, um, behind you know the Carnegie College building is the athletics track. And it became um, really my sole occupation training hard. I did actually return and play a bit of rugby. I played some rugby, second 15 rugby, just for about two months at Otley. Okay. Last last game of rugby I ever played was on the wing for Otley seconds against Bradford and Bingley seconds. They would have, Otley would have been quite uh, good, though, at that point, wouldn't they? Was Nigel Melville? Well, yeah. Was he still turning? Well, no, Mel, no, Melville had moved on, but I actually trained um, a lot with his brother. He has a younger brother. I think his name was Glyn. That's right, yeah. Who was all was also a good player, and um, he played on the wing for the for the ones. But I, um, I'd had a sort of foot operation in in '83, which had stopped me playing any sort of sport. So once I arrived in Leeds, I almost had a sort of a, you know, a, a sports free nine months to a year or something before I could start training again. And that was at the start of 1984, when again I was keen on my athletics, but I still a little bit of my heart was in rugby and that was when I went to Otley Rugby Club and I played probably about two months of, of stuff in the twos there. Um, but I, I think it told me that really, I think maybe I've softened up a bit, but um, certainly in comparison with some sort of big thuggish Yorkshire yeah. playing at Bradford and Bingley. But, but, um, but I then started training quite hard um, through the winter of 1984. Um, and uh, it, it was looking back on it, um, it was it was quite remarkable because I put my best time of fifty three point two from that English schools in nineteen eighty two with me into the nineteen eighty four athletic season. Um, back then, there was something called the UK Championships, yeah. which which was always at the start of the season. And I remember in 1984, it was at Cumbran in, um, in South Wales. And this, despite the name, it wasn't actually the most prestigious event. And I didn't make the final. Um, it was Olympic year. They also had, they followed a bit of an American style uh, in the UK. And what they did was they had an Olympic trials okay. as well over two straight midweeks. I think it was two Wednesday. I think the first Wednesday was at... Um, up at Gateshead, and the second Wednesday was um, at Crystal Palace. And um, there was just a straight runoff of the best eight athletes in the country in each event, um, split between the two venues. And I wasn't even invited because I didn't make the final uh, in the UK Championships. And um, so somebody won that. So we then got to 
the beginning or end of June, and it was the the old three A's championships, which was always the centerpiece of the athletic yeah, season. The big one. And it's uh, yeah, and it is now really what they call the UK championships mm. now in athletics. It really is the three A's. Uh, and I've been steadily improving, and I set a personal best, I think, of about fifty-one and a half seconds in a in a meeting behind a guy called Gary Oakes. Okay. Now Oakes Oakes had won the the bronze medal at the Olympics in 1980, you know, the depleted field yeah. in, in, in Moscow. Um, and he'd finished third behind a, a Soviet and, a, and an East German. And Gary had had a few injury problems. So Gary had yet to book his place. And there were three places for the Olympics. Two had already been given to the guys who finished first and second in the, in the Olympic trial. So there was one place up for grabs and it was, this was when athletics was in its pomp. It was when Sunday. Oh, exactly. And, and athletics was box office. We had, it was live on BBC grandstand. Uh, Oh yeah. I mean, we had a full house at um, a a full house for that Sunday afternoon at crystal palace. So about 15,000 and you you just don't get 15,000 watching athletics these Mm. days in the, in the UK. And it was live on television. It was the final runoff for places in the Olympic Games. I remember that there was Sebastian Coe that day against Peter Elliott oh, yeah. for the final spot in the 1500 metres. And you may or may not remember, but Elliott beat Coe, yeah. but, but they still picked Coe. And it was seen, of course, as, you know, poor old Peter, I was a good mate of mine, was utterly shafted, yeah. I think, that day. Um, I remember... I look back on the television and Steve Cram warming up in the background. He ran the 800 that day. I don't think Steve Ovet ran. I think he'd already been pre-selected, but Thompson would have been running the hurdles or something like mm. that. And, and it was the first big final of the day. And the day before I'd qualified from my heat. And of course I really was a no name brand because I hadn't run the UK championships. I hadn't run the trial, but I'd, I'd won my heat remarkably comfortably and for the first time and perhaps even the last time in my life I'd gone to bed the night before thinking hang on if you stay on your feet you will win and because I won my heat I had a good lane draw I was in lane six outside Gary Oakes who was everybody's favorite the commentator on the television was Ron Pickering and and Pickering was president of Haringey Athletics Club Gary Oakes was the big star of um, of Haringey Athletics Club, so you can imagine the build-up that Ron Pickering gave his man. And I was not Martin Gillingham. I was introduced by Pickering as Martin Gillingham. Right. I remember. And Oakes, as he did, he he was in lane five inside me. Shot past me going down the back straight. So with a staggered start. He'd already got about three, four, five metres on me at halfway. But again, you know, going back to the bit, I was never sprinting that quick, but I was as strong as an ox. And coming around the final bend, so to hurdle eight, I could sense that Oaks was slowing and my stride pattern was just coming into place. And I'll never forget that moment because I thought, even though I'm five metres down here, I'm going to win yeah. this. <laughs> And I scooted past him 
and I've still young young Nick watched it for the first time. Would you believe a couple of weeks ago in lockdown? He had nothing better to do. He said, "Where's where's that old disc, Dad?" So he sat there laughing and whatever. But you know, from from Martin Gillingham, I became Mike Gillingham at one yes. point as I scooted past, got my first mention by Mister Pickering, and and I won and I won. I ran the Olympic qualifying time. I knocked a second and a half off my lifetime best. I ran just over fifty seconds. Wow. And so so they had to pick me. So here I was, and and it, it was quite odd because for I mean that was my fifteen minutes of fame as a as a human because um, um, I was I I was the the one who'd come from nowhere um, on a day when, as you say, the other winners were Peter Elliott, Steve Cram. So is that the Daily the power of confidence, internal confidence? Yeah, I, I think it is, and I. Um, I mean, genuinely, I would not describe myself as the most confident of, of athletes at mm. all. Um, but that was the day that was my day. Right. And it, it, never, it never happened again in the same way. It never happened again in the same Even though I ran faster a few times and I won other good races, I mean, I can look back on my athletics career for somebody who at that level I still think had relatively modest ability uh, but I won at the Bislett Stadium in Oslo I beat the Olympic champion um, I I beat you know Chris Akabusi Akabusi boom yeah. boom as Nicholas Corson um, you know without ever realising he probably used to be an athlete but he was rather good was Chris um, but that was the one day when you know everything, all the stars are in line, and and also there's no doubt that when you are that young, you're 18, 19, 20, you you don't have barriers for yourself. Yes. Sometimes you don't overthink things, which I think you can do when you get a bit older. But it's that is an age when you can just improve by you know tenths, even half a second from one week to another. And, and that's what I did in 1984. So tell us about the Olympics then, Los Angeles. Well, do you know what? I mean, I, I have to be honest and say that it wasn't a happy experience. Right. Um, principally because I injured myself between winning that uh, 3 A's title and going to the Olympics. Um, some would say I should never have gone, but you try telling a 20-year-old kid that you can't go to the Olympics because you've got a bit of a dodgy knee. Um, so I went. Also, I do have some friends from athletics, but you can imagine it's a fairly intense environment yes. to be in when you go as a youngster with people who you only know two or three of them. Um, I spent, I think it was a month in the States before the Olympics. And apparently idyllic surroundings, it was a place called Point Loma, which was down near San Diego. We had sort of hot tubs overlooking the Pacific, um, but my knee was not in great shape. So I couldn't train very much. So, I mean, what do you do? I mean, this is why I'm sometimes critical of the situation when you hear about sports people being taken into camp and being taken away from a lot of the, the normal things that human beings do. Mm -hmm. um, 
I do think there is sometimes a problem when you put sports people in camp where all they have to do is focus on their sport because I think sometimes it's an unnatural environment. I mean, some people, they thrive in it, but I think many people for whom going around it, a golf ball, um, going and having a quiet orange down the pub with your mates, um, just doing normal things is, 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 yeah, is important. And being stuck, albeit in, an idy- in idyllic surroundings with 50 or 60 athletes, many of whom don't really care for, and perhaps don't have to care for anybody other than themselves. It's not always an easy environment. Mm. So when I'd hurt the knee, and then it was the knee injury, which in the end played a role in me stopping as an athlete, what, about four years later, um, it um, it wasn't always a happy experience because I, I performed poorly um, at the Olympics, didn't get through the first round. I would look at my knee as being the cause of it, but doesn't matter. It happened. Um, I mean, I, I will never forget now being a journalist. I understand why these questions are asked, but I remember coming out of the stadium after running poorly and being faced with a journalist who said to me, so do you now agree that Gary Oakes should have been selected ahead of you, oh. which will live with me, which, 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 and, and there were, I mean, there were people in the sort of involved with British athletics who, um, because again, I mean, I stress, I and mean, it wouldn't happen now because athletics just isn't the high profile sport that it once was, but there is no doubt that I was fairly savagely treated by the, by the press. Um, in the aftermath, but now having done my bit as a journalist, I understand why. But what, what did you learn from all of that? Um, I, I learned that sports are fairly brutal business. Yeah, <laughs> top end sport. But top end sport is, is, is brutal. It is unforgiving. Um, it is highs and lows. And I know this sounds a little bit cliche, but it, 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 it does it does perhaps teach you that when things are going well, don't get too carried away. Um, but at the same time, try and moderate what goes on between your ears when things don't go well, because I mean, that's, that's what happens to all, to all sports people. Mm. Um, so it, it was in its own way, quite um, a, uh, and, and if I consider what happened to me after that, it clearly had a lasting impact because I didn't run at all in 1985. I just didn't run. Um, Came back to athletics in 1986 and ran poorly. Didn't make the Commonwealth Games, which somebody of of my ability shouldn't have had a problem Mm. getting into an England team. I think I was fourth and the first three went. Um, And of course, I think when you're of the level of athlete that I was, Commonwealth Games was a chance to win. Yeah. And in fact, and, and in fact, that year, 1986, Commonwealth Games were in Edinburgh. And it was one of the guys who's still a bit of a mate of mine who, who went to me with the Olympics in 1984, uh, won the Commonwealth title. Um, so that's the sort of thing I could have won. 
um, but obviously didn't, didn't even go. But then I came back again, 87, um, and I'd had, I'd had problems with my knee again, but I came back in 87 and I had my best, best year ever. Um, was that world, and, first world champs, was it? 87? It was a, se- it was a second world champs. Um, first world champs was 83 in Helsinki and then 87 was Rome. Was Rome. Yeah. And, but then world championships, because they only took place once every four years, and because of the boycotts in 1980 and 84 at Olympic level, world championships almost had the status, a status certainly on a par with Olympics, mm. perhaps even perhaps even more so, because it was the 87 world championships was the first time for a long time at global level the Americans had run against and the Britons had run against the Soviet Union and East Germany. And whatever you think of in terms of the politics um i and, and i've always been very interested in 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 sort of east germany and, and and that sort of time cold war period because my father was actually an army officer and we lived as as a kid very close to the east german border um i still from a sporting perspective regret the decline of countries like east germany and russia because you always like to beat them <laughs> and athletics has never been quite the same without the uh, the Eastern Bloc because they were powerful. Now we can sit here and we know why they were powerful. And it's obviously one of the great sore points in sports, you know, the whole sort of doping cultures and state-sponsored doping. But the reality is that the sight of a Soviet vest or an East German vest was always, I found, quite exciting. And I had the opportunity to run in. I ran in what was... Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, and ran in a, against a bunch of Soviets, and it was one of the great experiences of life. Was there um, um, my... was there rumor on the street that they weren't quite right? Some of these athletes. Well, do you know what? I mean, I, I I've been um, through my journalistic years um i've taken a great interest in in the whole doping issues in sport and i do have some very strong opinions about it but i was a sort of 20 year old kid from who was living those days in the home counties and i and i think i think had quite a sheltered life i don't remember ever really giving a moment's thought to it all Mm. Uh, i mean i do remember at the World Championships in 1987, walking through the village, and there was a, he, he won the world title that year in the 400 metres, a guy called Thomas Schoenleber, who, whose name, if you look him up, he features quite prominently. He ran very, very fast at the 400. And he had this dreadful acne rash down the back of both legs and across his shoulders. Now, if you ask anybody in those days, Cla- you know, classic acne time, rashes up the yeah. back. Correct, classic classic steroid abuse, um, particularly up the legs. And I do remember that, but it's not something I ever gave too much thought to at the time. If I look back in in hindsight, I think we have to be honest and accept that there was a a doping culture in those days, not just in the Eastern Bloc, but it was terrible in the States. And, And I don't think we have to look very far from home either. Um, I, I, I'm pretty certain there were British athletes who achieved mm. as well. Did uh, Ben Johnson won the hundred, didn't he, in eighty-seven in Rome? 
you're right. You're absolutely spot on. And I ran my heat of the 400 meter hurdles, the lane outside Edwin Moses. I think about half an hour later, actually. Right. And I, I think I probably even ran in the same lane as him, as Ben Johnson. But yeah, I mean, he, he of course, became um, sort of the enfant terrible of, of athletics. And um, uh, I mean, his moment a year later in Seoul when he won that, that dirty 100 metre final, that clearly was, it was supposed to be a turning point in athletics. I'm not sure it was. It was a big story, but athletics didn't learn what it needed to learn from that. But but that's right. I mean, that was... 87 was Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, Linford Christie was in that final, I seem to recall. So the, um, uh, you just mentioned there Edward Moses. Now he yeah. was, so you raced against him? Yeah, I think I probably ran against him maybe 10 times, I okay. think, yeah. It was 10 nil, certainly. Yeah, Moses, well, I so, think yeah. he was virtually unbeaten his whole career, wasn't he? Well, he ran over eight years, he won 122 straight races. Yeah, he, he lost it. 88 Olympics, he, he fell short, didn't he? He did, he was beaten. That was, that was won by Andre Phillips, who I only ever ran against Andre Phillips once. But when I ran that lifetime best of 49 point something at Crystal Palace, it was Moses won, Akabusi, Boosty, boom, boom. He was second. I was third and Andre Phillips was fourth. Okay, wow. But that's right. Phillips Phillips was the one who deposed Moses at championship level. But there was a guy called Danny Harris, who uh, is, a, is a cracking story, a bit of a sad story, really. He finished second behind Moses in 84 when he, I think he was 18. He was eventually banned for life, um, cocaine positives. Oh. And he had a social drugs problem. And poor old Danny... Um, wound up as a bit of a down and out in Los Angeles, I think. Um, but he was awesomely talented, uh, was, was Danny Harris. Ooh, I think it's gone down. Hi, Martin. Sorry. Hi. Um, my phone went, which throws the Wi-Fi and all sorts of stuff. Oh, so apologies. Um, so just moving on from your athletics career, you've obviously um, stayed in sport. So how did you make the transition from uh, world-class athlete into journalism and then to where you've ended up? You've been very present? kind. You've been very kind about the world-class athlete. I've never thought <laughs> like that. Um, I think I was, I was never cut out... First of all, despite going and, and, and getting a Bachelor of Education degree, I don't think I was ever cut out for education. Um, what did you train in? I mean, I did. I was qualified as a PE teacher and a maths teacher. Um, oh, you'd be I like think... gold dust nowadays, teaching PE and maths. It'd be a job for you at Trent College. If you don't no, no, I'm, not, I'm not decent enough, I think, to be a... Um, to, to to do what you do, you, uh, I, I could uh, I could only hope to be uh, to to be that committed and good. Um, I also was not particularly cut out for the I think for the um, working frankly as part of an office or a team or anything like that. The corporate world was not for me, 
But what I did do, I, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe I remember watching all the president's men, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, and maybe I watched a bit of, of, uh, of that and, um, and, uh, and, and decided at some point during my athletics career that I'd like to become a journalist. And, I mean, rather boringly, towards the end of my athletics career, I was, I wrote a couple of pieces for Athletics Weekly magazine and they offered me a job and I went to work there and um, the company who owned Athletics Weekly were very good about developing their employees. So I was sent on one or two formal courses to learn how to be a, to be a journalist. And I remember doing box pops, going around, tracking people down in the street and in uh, in Covent Garden in London and learning how to write headlines and how to sub-edit uh, copy, as we call it in the in the newspaper business. And I spent two or three years there. And then I wanted to really become a proper journalist and work for a newspaper. And I applied for various jobs with some of the big regionals, didn't get a look in. I applied for jobs at the BBC, went for interviews, but was never offered a job. And at the time, and we're talking now 1992, I was fascinated in South Africa because I'd been brought up by a cricket-loving father and tales of Graham Pollock and Barry Richards and people like that. And being a rugby nut as well, the Springboks, who they were isolated from us, but you remember yourself, and we, we were isolated from them. Yeah. And some of the great names, you know, the Donny Kerbers and people like that, were people who we never saw play. Anyway, I took myself off in 1992 just to go to South Africa. I, having been a teammate in 1984 of Zola Budd, who I knew pretty well, I went and did a feature on a freelance basis for the Daily Telegraph on Zola, who in 92 had reverted to being a South African, as it were, and had qualified to compete for South Africa in the Barcelona Olympics, which was the return of South Africa to the international movement. And when I was there, I bumped into a guy whose name will be familiar to, to many who are involved in rugby, Edward Griffiths, who okay. most, recently, most recently has been the chief executive at Saracens. But then he was the sports editor of the, the uh, South African Sunday Times, which was the big Sunday paper in Johannesburg. And, you know, it was typical, typical of Edward. He, I bumped into him and chatted to him and he knew I was and, he said, why don't you fancy coming and meeting me for a bit of lunch? And he said during the lunch, does he ever, ever fancy come to South Africa? And I was a single fella at the time and there was nothing to lose. And I, I said yes. And then I can remember going back home to the UK and saying no. And then the uh, magazine I was working for went into, uh, had some troubles and looked like closing. So I can remember making a phone call from a, red telephone box in Kingston-upon-Thames and phoning up Edward and saying, look, I finally made my mind up, I'm going to come. And I went over there in October 92. And as much as, dare I say, uh, the experience of Harvard University haunts me a bit, although I think it played a part in making me what I was or am, uh, there's no doubt that the opportunity that Edward gave me in 92 was a turning point. And mm. I went there, I worked for the newspaper. I thought I'd go for 18 months. 
I ended up spending 12 years there. Wow. I got involved. I got involved in radio. I became good mates with a former Island international and British and Irish lion called John Robbie, who a bit like me went to South Africa for a few months and ended up staying. And uh, he became a bit of a radio star there. He gave me a chance to work on the radio where the sports editor was a former Manchester United goalkeeper called Gary Bailey. Yes, I remember Gary Bailey. So, so I, you know, I ended up working with both John Robbie and Gary Bailey. And what I think was my break as a, as a commentator as I became, which, you know, I, I suppose like any sort of young school kid, I can remember sitting when I was 10 or 11 or 12 upstairs in the back bedroom watching, I can remember one day sitting and watching the entire test match with a, an old um, cassette recorder and pretending to commentate on the, on the cricket. But really my aspirations as a commentator were no more than that. But I became sports editor at a talk radio station in Cape Town, which was, you know, a bit like it's on the LBC or a Five Live, if you like. And Cape Town's a sports mad city. And I was at the Curry Cup final, which in which was at Newlands in Cape Town in 1997. And it was Western Province against Free State. And I'll never forget it. And I was just doing newspaper, uh, sorry, um, telephone 30 second updates from the ground for the radio station. And the match was on a knife edge going into the final minute. So what they decided was, right, well, give him a chance. Let him, let him commentate for the last two or three minutes of this in those days, you know, the Curry Cup was was the be-all and end-all of South African rugby. And I can remember there was a young wing called Janhan Fabek who crossed over in the Cup of Free State. It appeared that Free State had snatched the Curry Cup under the noses of the province. But the referee called Andre Watson, who refereed two, okay. World, Cup, <laughs> two World Cup finals, decided he'd seen a forward pass. And this just happened to be happening when I was doing the commentary. And... The long and short of it was that the radio station saw that there was, it was a commercial radio station, saw that there was an opportunity to provide some good radio and also importantly for commercial stations, make a bit of money out of it. And I ended up doing commentary on the radio for four or five years on Western province. I went to all, all rugby hubs in South Africa from the highs of places like uh, Kings Park in Durban and Ellis Park in Joburg to, um, the Pumbrink Stadium in Springs and places like Velcom in the back of nowhere and the uh, Hoffy Park in uh, in Kimberley, but I would I went every weekend doing Western Province games and then uh, uh, games involving the Stormers in in Super Rugby. And when eventually we decided, uh, as a family, because my wife's South African, we met in ninety five ninety six, uh, when we decided that. I'd come back to the UK and my wife and by then young Nicholas, who was born, you know, with an earshot of Newlands and our daughter came back to the UK. I had the experience which gave me the opportunity to at least sort of fire around a few VHS tapes to places like Sky Sports. And I was lucky, you know, they picked mm. me up and, you know, one thing led to another, really. And what about um, interviewing people? Have you, have you had some good experiences and positive experiences and challenging experiences with, I guess you'd call them famous sports stars? I suspect you know the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure our listeners do. Right, well, if anybody is um, 
whoever is listening to this, just do a YouTube search on Brendan Fenter. Okay. There was an infamous interview, and I'm trying to think when it was. It was about 2010, 2011. It was a... I was working for Sky Sports, and I'd done the commentary in a Heineken Cup game between Saracens and uh, Racing 92, or Racing Metro, as they were called then. And the game was at what was then Saracens' home, which was Vicarage Road in Watford, where they now just play the football. And I'd done the commentary. I remember my co-com was Martin Corrie, former England captain. And the way things work in TV, as soon as you've done the commentary on the game, you dash down the ladder, you go straight to the interview room, somebody sticks some headphones on you, and there's a few things going on in your ears. And when they know everybody's in place um, on one of these Saturday afternoons in European rugby, when they've got about five minutes between matches, they come straight back for, for a live interview. Now, Sometimes with these interviews, they do actually pre-record them and play them five minutes later. But they decided this one with Brendan Fenter, who Brendan, the background was that Brendan, who liked to speak his mind, had spoken his mind about referees in after round one or round two of a European tie, I think, which that's always in October. And had got himself um, banned from, oh, it wasn't banned, he was fined for saying a few things about referees. And he went into sort of self-imposed exile and refused to do any interviews. But remarkably, that name I've mentioned already, Edward Griffiths, was uh, was now chief exec at Saracens, so he knew me. And Brendan announced that on that day, he would make his first interview. He would make his first public appearance for two months since he'd gone into self-imposed exile. And I remember Edward, who always had a little cheeky glint in his eye, came over to me at the start of the afternoon. He said, are you doing the interview today? I said, yes. And he looked at me and smiled and winked and said, it'll be a good one. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think anything at all of it. Anyway, if you go and do Brendan Fenter interview on YouTube, you will see what happened. It was 57 seconds of pure gold when what... Brendan Fenter did was he played the attitude of effectively answering each question by almost repeating what I was saying. And he was totally uncooperative, but it turned out to be 57 seconds of broadcasting gold. And I was desperately trying to ask questions, find questions to ask. And, um, his answers were, you know, questions such as, why did you lose today? It was, I'll have to think about that. Think about it very deeply. And the turn in the game, the, the, the moment that turned the game, because Saracens lost, was if anybody remembers the Fiji wing called Sorelli Bombo. Yeah. Who scored a marvellous try. And I'll never forget the question was, uh, did it finally hinge on a bit of genius from Sorelli Bombo? And it brought out that famous line. It became famous from Brendan Fenton. They actually printed T-shirts, would you believe? And it came with that famous line, three cheers to Sorelli Bombo. If you do a YouTube, if you, if you do a Google search and put in three cheers to Sorelli Bombo, it'll tell you about this interview. It's, um, 
Worth it is. It, it became the most infamous interview, and it 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 made it made the news. It made the news. People wrote columns about it in the newspaper. The Daily Mirror had a full spread on it in their paper because they discovered what the motivation for the interview was, and it was a uh, apparently an interview in a film with Ricky Tomlinson in about what would he call himself, Ron Manager, England football manager. That's right, yeah. And and apparently what had happened was Saracens on the team bus the previous week had played a premiership game at Gloucester and they'd had this film on the um, on in the bus and Fentrew decided, what I'll do is I shall mimic that interview style next weekend in the game. So it, it is worth watching because... Um, Brendan, who is not everybody's cup of tea, but I've got to know him a bit since um, he he is a unique character, but he's got a great sense of humour. The obviously with with your job, you work closely with other people who've achieved a high level of sport. Just if they're co-commentating, yeah. uh, what what do you pick up in terms of similarities between the people who have achieved a certain amount, whether it be and Edward Griffiths in the world of business, or you know, obviously you mentioned there Martin Corrie, and I know you co-commentate with various other different stars. Is there any similarities in terms of character type and personality type that makes you think that's why they are they achieve what they achieve? I don't think necessarily. I think that there is no doubt that, like any high achievers, there is. And don't read anything into this. I think all of them have got a bit of nastiness to them. Yeah. Um, I think that is almost an essential requirement. I mean, having said that, I mean, I believe me, I've worked with some lovely people, but there is no doubt at the moment there is a that they need it. There is a bit of ruthlessness mm. and a little bit of self and a little bit of ego. And I think that that is a fundamental requirement for a high achieving sports person. It does not mean that you cannot be a thoroughly decent, um, thoroughly pleasant, great company human being. But I think when the chips are down, most of most of the best sportsmen have got a ruthless streak. And I think they all have to have it. I think that some wear it better than others and with some, it's a little bit easier to see. Yeah, yeah, good one. Um, uh, but I think that all sports people do need to have a bit of that. Mm. And I mean, good good guys do win, but I think there's a disproportionate number who don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's—I mean—I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of you can be a a good person, but if you can channel that direct instinct that self-focus at the right time then perhaps it's a worthwhile trait to engender yeah yeah I mean if I just go back to my own athletics career um Daley Thompson who I mean I, I I had a big fallout with Daley Thompson which is no it's too long a story to go into it but I remember he sitting down with me in Los Angeles and having a like a sort of fatherly type chat about competing at the highest level um, now, that is something I will 
always remember. And that to me is always a big tick in the box for Daley Thompson. What were his messages? It was, it was all about, again, keeping everything in a sort of sense of proportion. It was a lot about training and preparation. A lot about, you remember old Daly used to go out and always used to talk about training on Christmas Day because it gave him an extra day ahead of everyone else. Now, I don't know whether it necessarily impacted on me, but I can always remember going out and training on Christmas morning. Um, it was just little bits like that. Mm. But, it was, but, but what leaves the greatest mark is that here's a guy who was in Los Angeles to, to win a gold for himself, but he still had time to give 45 minutes or an hour to me. Yeah. Um, however, comparing with a co or a cram, they'd walk past you and look straight mm. through you. Um, Edwin Moses, I stood, I ran against him, as I said, about 10 times. I sat next to him in call rooms and three or four of those. After races, I stood on the medal rostrum with him two or three times at events. Never said a word to mm. him. Um, it's not a personal criticism, but there are different approaches to this. I mean, somebody like Steve Ovette, I mean, he's, we're talking great sporting heroes. I mean, he's one of mine. And I think I can, I mean, he lives in Australia these days and I live in Nottingham. So we're hardly in daily contact, but whenever I see him, he's somebody who is a mate, but he's somebody who competed at the top level with not everybody's favourite cup of tea, but I can tell you he's a cracking, a cracking bloke. Mm. Um, so there are different, different types of people. Um, and I mean, there's no doubt that there are common traits, as I say, when it comes to champions. And I think that that little ruthless streak, and certainly Obert had that, uh, I think, is what separates them. Um, um, what's your view on leadership, Martin? Leadership? Well, there is one name, and again, he's a name you can, you can look up by doing a, a bit of a Google search. But if I go back to my school days, and when I made it into the first 15 at school when I was a year 11, so 15, and I was the, only, I was the youngest in that team by a year, and our captain was a guy called Dave Cheeseright. David Cheeseright. Now, I only learned this relatively recently, but I remember back in those days, to me, he was a sort of perfect on-field leader. He didn't, he didn't say a huge amount, but he commanded immediate respect. He was a very good rugby player, which I think played a part in it. He was clearly confident in his own ability, but quietly and modestly. He was a bright individual, not, not nerdy intelligent. He was not a school nerd. He was a, a sportsman who was quite bright. But I think what separated him as a leader from just about every other sort of leadership figure I've dealt with was he, you've got a sense that he cared for you. Right. And what I learned very recently about, about Dave, who I haven't had any contact with for years and years and years, if you look him up, he recently left his role as president and chief executive officer of Walmart International. Oh, wow. Now, <laughs> okay. 
That is a serious, serious yeah. job. He went to he went to Loughborough University, um, and I don't think he played much rugby beyond the university, if any. But he was another one who, again, as a rugby player, I remember being. I'm not sure he may have played for England at sort of 16 and 18 group level, but he was very close to it. Uh, so he was a good, good sportsman, but he was just the leader who did not shout and scream and beat his chest. And he was a quiet but commanding presence, but he was a caring yeah. presence as well. And if I look back now, I think, hey, it doesn't surprise me that he's gone on to mm. do what he's done away from the sports. Fascinating, isn't it? The, um, uh, we're just coming towards the end now, Martin. Thank you very much for your time. A uh, couple of questions to finish. Um, what was your, what's, I know you've had two children through the school and obviously Nick's unfortunately missed this last cricket season, but um, yeah. I'm sure you've had some favourite Trent moments through your, ch- your children. So what would be your favourite Trent moment? And what advice Look, I, would you yeah. give to a Trent college pupil? Look, I, in terms of the, the moment, um, I'm, I, this is self-indulgence, and I, I, I do apologise ahead of it, but the, the proudest I've been and my great sporting moments when I turned up, I'm afraid, late <laughs> to, to, to Repton last year, and, and young Nick had come in at about 10 for two or something like that, or 10 for one uh, on an awkward pitch, and I think he went on to make 68. Yeah, and... And why I um, and why I admire that in particular is that I never made sixty eight as a batsman, and I did I did play schools county cricket, so I was I was never a natural cricketer, but I know at that level how difficult it is, and despite having been as a youngster the sportsman and been a quite high achieving sports person there are two things which still elude me and fascinate me and one is the ability of somebody to go out with a cricket bat and to make a big score because I think that the mental challenge is huge and similarly and it's still a challenge I have on a week by week basis is how people score golf again it's there are parallels I think with with cricket how people go out for three, four hours and keep their head on a golf course. It's the same with batting, I think. The ability to stick your head down and not make mental mistakes. Um, I mean, I, my sport lasted 49, 50 seconds to go, go out and do it for three or four hours, uh, I think is remarkable. So from a sort of personal pride moment with, with Nick, and it is self-indulgent, but... But having heard and seen his face and and said well done to him for something which I could never have done. Yeah. I think that was that was special. Um, and I mean, on, on a sort of general point, um, uh, I know the rugby team didn't have that much success this 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 winter at the first team, but clearly, you know, we've had our success in recent seasons down at Twickenham and I'm, I'm sure those sort of times are now ahead of us. Um, but just to be able to see 
my lad mixing with others in what is genuine camaraderie, whether it's at rugby or whether it's cricket. I mean, that's something which, which I miss because mm. um, I, in the end, was an individual sportsman, which is, which, which is a slightly lonely life. There's no doubt about that. Now, in, in terms of advice, again, it's a bit of a hackneyed line, but YOLO, you only live once. I, I think that if you have a sporting dream, you've got to chase it. But I remember when I was in, in Joburg and obviously you're reasonably sort of prominent in the sort of sporting community. And I remember somebody who listened to me on the radio called me up and said, would I have a cup of coffee somewhere? Because they wanted to discuss something with me. And they sat in front of me, this, this fellow, and he, his question to me was, look, I've got a son who's a, a good cricketer and a good rugby player and also a decent athlete. Which sport do you think he should pursue? Where do you think he will make the most money? And it was, I find it horrifying mm. because you've only got to look around sport. And I, on Monday, I was uh, at, at my golf club. I, I played golf up at Hollingwell and they had a professional tournament. And there were guys there playing a level of golf that I can only dream of playing. Yet, despite being as good as they are, they're not making a living. No. Sport at the highest level is fiercely, fiercely competitive. So if you are motivated by even earning a living out of sport, I think that is the wrong way of approaching it, which is why I think you need, when you're at school, to take a balanced view. You must always... Always throw yourself into your sport, but never do it at the complete exclusion of anything else. Um, for every Luke Donald, there are thousands of those who end up being good golfers, but don't make it. Mm. And if you, if you don't give yourself the chance to succeed, then I think you will perhaps always regret it. But never go into a sporting dream or a sporting career without a plan B. Um, and I, I do think that's absolutely crucial. Excellent advice, Mr. Gillingham. Excellent advice. Um, <laughs> so we'll finish with some one-worders. So I, yeah. I say one word and you say the first thing that comes into your head. Crikey, this is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, South Africa. Rainbow Nation. Olympics. Failure. Rugby. Springboks. Daley Thompson. Hero. Commentating. Precarious. Trent College. Perfect opportunity. Great. Thanks very much, Martin. I re genuinely really appreciate your time. Um, I know you'll be getting busier as sort of live sport returns. So good luck with with uh, with your next sort of onward journey. What is next on the programme? It's... I mean, we're waiting, hopefully, for rugby to resume August the 15th, there or thereabouts. But looking at it from a distance, it appears we're in a situation where we have those who 
a concern about what's going on with international right we've got this classic club versus country debate haven't we yeah. where they're all trying to squeeze in i don't know what 15 or 16 weekends of rugby into about 10 into nine, isn't it? Yeah. and something has to give so we shall see they need you in there they need you in there martin sort of uh, you know debating and, and managing both sides of the story <laughs> You flatter me. You flatter me. <laughs> Great. Well, thank, but I think, thank yeah, you very much. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, from a personal level, I mean, I've got, um, I mean, Nix has got a great opportunity and uh, he's, it looks like he's now going to South Africa for a gap year. Right. And, um, I, and I got this out, I, idea from, and his name just gone up my head, Jones, Jones, Jones. You know, the, the Scotland Centre was his first name. Hugh Jones? Hugh Jones, Hugh Jones. I interviewed Hugh probably two years ago now. And I don't know if you remember the story of Hugh Jones, yeah. but he, he went to South Africa for a year and um, wound up playing university rugby, then club, or club rugby, then university rugby. And he got picked up by the Stormers. And Scotland, the Scottish uh, sort of video analyst or whatever they call him, was watching a university game between the University of Cape Town and the University of Potchefstroom. And they saw this bloke called Hugh Jones have an absolute cracker. And they looked him up and saw that he had a Scotland qualification. And that's what brought him back here. Well, I spoke to Hugh and what Hugh had done, what had taken him to South Africa, was going and working for a year at Bishop's School, which is where, uh, I mean, Francois Lowe, yeah, despite having the Afrikaans name, he's actually an English speaker and he went to Bishops. And people like Herschel Gibbs went on a scholarship and it's a great sporting school. Anyway, Nick's has got a chance to do a year down there as a sort of general dog's body, you know, like a sort of a sports assistant. Yeah, correct. And it looked like it was off and now it's back on again. But of course, what... So we've rebooked flights for September 20-something. What we've just got to hope is he gets his A-level grades because he's set on going to do politics at Liverpool University. So um, I know the die is now cast, but um, hopefully, hope, hopefully your colleagues <laughs> <laughs> haven't made my life easy. Fingers crossed. Um, no, exactly. Correct. Um, great. Um, so, well, if, if assuming he gets his grades and he can go to University of Liverpool, he will defer and he'll go to South Africa on the 20-something of September and um, play a bit of league cricket down there and just and who knows? hopefully be down there he for might, the line. He might not come back for another 12 years. Oh, I mean, between you and me, I mean, it's sad what's going on there now. I mean, the coronavirus has... Uh, they don't have too much fat to play with economically in South Africa. Yeah. And um, it is it is crippling the place. It really is. I mean, it's well, quite sad. We'll have to do another pod on um, on various other things that you're interested in. Because obviously, you know, the whole Sia Khaleesi uh, and the impact he's had on South Africa would be an interesting pod on its own, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, know, I... It, I I mean, I, I sat through, do you remember the King Commission, the Hansi Cronier thing? I, I sat through all of that. I mean, I've got, I mean, it's, it's the Wild West of South Africa as a journalist. I got involved in all sorts of scrapes, but, right. you know, it's, um, it's, all, it's all quite yeah. fun. For another day. I can, 
I can also tell you about having a heart attack on a treadmill when I was very, very fortunate to have um, the England team doctor in the, um, and one of the physios behind me on the treadmill when it happened. I don't know if Nicola told you about that. But, well, uh, uh, yeah, I was there because it's on your, it's on your Twitter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was that was quite an amusing tale. But, yeah, um, so I will book you in, Mr. Gillingham. For no, a, you can do. I'm very happy for another, to do that. For another uh, hour of your time. Perfect. Is, 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 is there a copy of this you can send me so I can just sort of file it away and, um, uh, and have something to go back to? Yeah, that's easily done. Um, so Brilliant. stand by. I've got to edit it and things like that. And then I'll... Um, no worries. Brilliant. Great. Thanks, Martin. My pleasure. Take care. Huge thank you to Martin for coming on the pod today. He's, uh, he's a busy guy. He's an entertaining guy. Uh, and you can see why he's a journalist, the way his brain is um, engaged across many different aspects of uh, social, political, sporting life. Um, what did we learn from, uh, from his insights? Seize the opportunity, I think, was the big thing. He was... Uh, obviously building up to an athletic season and then the opportunity came to potentially get into the Athletics Olympic Games and cometh the hour, cometh the moment, he obviously performed to the highest level when it was required. Um, Then, of course, there was the opportunity in South Africa. Uh, So it's a case of being open-minded, seeing what's possibly out there um, and embracing the opportunities, the people that you meet, the network that you grow with. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to his pod. Um, As I said on there, uh, there is every chance I'll get him on again because uh, he's certainly got uh, some more stories to tell. Thanks for listening. I hope to be potting again very shortly. Bye for now.